Thank you for tuning in to Tactile, a practical guide to transforming art and culture. This is the podcast of Leveraging a Network for Equity, LANE, a program of the National Performance Network. LANE supports arts organizations of color and rural organizations with time and resources needed to grow their infrastructure in ways that are culturally authentic and moves the field towards justice. I'm your host, Sage Crump, Program Specialist for LANE. During this episode of Tactile, we have the honor of talking to Yuna Lee, Creative Director of And Also Two, Design Director of the Allied Media Projects, Director of Consentful Tech, and a Steering Committee member of the Design Justice Network. Yuna was one of the principal people involved in the development of Design Justice. Welcome to Tactile, Yuna. We're really excited to have you. I'm going to just go ahead and launch in with some questions and some thoughts. Like, how did design justice become a, a thought or a thing? Like, how did that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a designer. I'm trained as a graphic designer. And the reason I went into graphic design was um, I was creating a lot of uh, zines and various media websites uh, for social movements. And just really loved participating in that way. I loved kind of working behind the scenes. I loved creating compelling images and visuals that could support movements. Um, And so I went into graphic design with the hope that I could do this as a living. Um, And when I emerged, that was kind of around the same time that all this conversation around design for social impact or design for social good uh, was starting to bubble up. Um, and it was exciting to me until I kind of saw how it was playing out. Um, I was seeing that it was, you know, replicating a lot of uh, neoliberal capitalist dynamics. Like it wasn't really changing the way that design was being used and it wasn't changing the way that design was happening. It was just, it was the same kind of top-down expert professional coming into your community and solving your problems. Um, uh, And the only difference being that, um, you know, it might've been for a nonprofit versus a corporation. Um, So that was pretty disappointing to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time I was hearing about and learning about all these uh, other movements like media justice and, digital justice um, and and I don't know um, I wasn't hearing a lot of or anything about design justice um, and other folks might have been using that phrase as well so I'm not saying that this is something that you know I originated um, but I just thought that you know if we apply a lens of social justice to design um, then we think about it in terms of impacts and not intentions which is what i was seeing a lot of in the social impact world that it was these designers with really good intentions who wanted to have this impact um and so the focus of those stories was really about 
you know, them being very well-meaning, them caring about a specific cause, and then coming in with their design expertise to yeah. help. Um, and we've seen that narrative over and over about like the, you know, well-meaning white savior and so on and so forth. We have. <laughs> um, and so what really was inspiring about um, uh, media justice and digital justice in particular was the ways that they um, framed, uh, framed things in terms of the outcomes, framed their work in terms of the outcomes rather than intentions. Or oh, impacts rather than yeah impacts rather than intentions oh that's that's really interesting thank you for that um because oftentimes i think that the the idea of justice gets weaved into the process um, and so they're like, oh, we're doing something that's justice related. Look who we're working with. Or it's, it's, we're going to call it justice because, like you said, because of the intentions we have behind it. And, and so listening to you, there's like this through line for me of like intention, process, and impact outcome. Um, and, and what do you hope the income, the, the outpack, the outcome or impact? <laughs> the outcome impact when you think about design justice, what is that outcome impact related to it? Yeah, I, I love breaking it down that way in terms of intentions and process and impact. Um, because of course, they, they all need to be aligned with each other. But the thing that was missing in this design for social impact um, framing was like, let's, well, let's talk about the actual impact. And so the when we talk about design justice we talk about the distribution of harms and benefits um and in um in a kind of conventional capitalist design process the the benefits are disproportionately they flow towards the people with the most power in the situation um and the harms or the risks are disproportionately um born by the people who have the least amount of power. Mm. So design justice hopes to um, distribute the, uh, the risks and the rewards more equitably. Wow. I feel like that's a mic drop. <laughs> that's, that's like, yes. <laughs> that, is, that is a, is a, an important way to think about uh, uh, to land around the idea of justice. Um, I also think about power, right? Mm -hmm. Inside of that, you know, um, that what you were describing earlier is a lot of the, in terms of the intention um, and the well, the well meaning, I've got air quotes for folks who can't say, uh, <laughs> well meaning <laughs> intentions of folks who are designing quote unquote with communities um uh, uh but at the end like you said there there's this i have this body of knowledge that i'm going to come in and make your life better with mm -hmm. um that doesn't actually shift uh, um not even the power relationship between the people involved you know um as a designer as mm -hmm. someone who designs um how, what does that look like to to 
try and equalize that or at, in, even make sure that there's more power and more uh, uh, support um, and more benefit in using the, the framework that you're talking about, more benefit for the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks like a bunch of different things. Um, so, I mean, people have been solving their own problems forever. Um, people have always... We still forget that. Yeah. <laughs> People we're all have, still here. We're we're still here. Um, you know, communities don't get stalled out in their evolution because they encountered a problem that they just couldn't solve without outside help. And so I think that that's um, one of the most important things to recognize is that um, everyone has the capacity to solve their own problems. Um, they might not have the resources. Uh, so that's one way in which we can redistribute power. Um, but there's definitely the ingenuity, there is the knowledge of their own circumstances, um, and that really needs to be recognized. We have a lot of, uh, you know, design researchers or design uh, anthropologists who will um, put a lot of energy into researching people, um, but who might not be as adept at listening um, and just honoring the fact that people are very familiar with what they're experiencing and um, yeah, and don't need necessarily need an expert to, to research them in order to understand what they're experiencing. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then another thing is uh, questions of ownership. Um, when we think about design and design for social impact, um, I think often we're dancing around the question of who owns the solution, who owns the product or the service that comes out of this process. <clears throat> and if, if the people who are, as you know, supposedly being designed for are not owning that solution, then really are, is that distribution of benefit or reward? Is that, um, is that truly equitable mm -hmm. if they're not owning and controlling it? When you say owning it, I hear owning in two ways. Um, I hear owning in a, in, a, in a material way, like this is ours to do with what we want. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's also the sort of emotional, for lack of a better term, uh, connection to this idea of owning, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, um, where they're like, this is not something, it's, I don't own it because you've handed it to me. Mm -hmm. I own it because it has come from me and from the folks who who look like me or the people I'm around and most closest to. Yeah, Is that exactly. <clears throat> and I find that that sense of ownership really develops through the process of making something together. Um, if I were to just come in and make something and say, okay, this is yours, um, there's no there isn't that sense of, of personal connection and investment in what's been created. And so it's, you know, we see all the time these examples of innovation that are bestowed upon communities and upon folks and that just kind of, they might be great ideas, but they don't, um, they don't actually get off the ground. They don't actually get used and implemented um, because, I mean, one of the reasons could be um, that lack of a sense of ownership of the process um as well as other things like you know 
the infrastructure isn't there to support the idea or um, it just wasn't a good idea to begin with. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now, now, now you're talking my, my uh, language because if I had to redo my business cards, uh, <laughs> they would say I'm the maven of process. I love the, uh, I live in process. <laughs> I love so I'm wondering like, what about, what kind of processes have you seen or, or processes that you use that feel like they, they create the sense of ownership in, in the multiple ways ownership can be, can be thought of? Totally. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening around um, collaborative design um, and a lot of, there's a lot of practitioners at the moment practicing collaborative design. Um, and, you know, collaboration can vary by degrees, um, but I really think that it is um, in order to get to design justice that we need to be using deeply collaborative processes. Um, and that's that begins with, you know, being invited in as designers rather than, um, you know, coming in uh, it means developing relationships and working on trust um, and connecting as humans before connecting as, you know, uh, people with different roles in a process. Um, and, and then it means just uh, listening to each other and iterating and um, being vulnerable with each other and you know, the design experts recognizing that um, that maybe they don't have all the answers. Um, and yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate that. Like, and you said this earlier as well, like how to come in and listen. Listen. And for, for folks who are um, just thinking about what it means to engage differently right like to 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 try and and work with design justice i want to take a minute and just unpack collaboration right because sometimes collaboration gets turned into oh look who we all have invited in the room Mm -hmm. therefore we are now collaborating Mm -hmm. and i feel like listening to you there are more layers than just having multiple different kinds of people in a space when you say the word collaboration Yeah, what? absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been in various different kinds of rooms, and sometimes the rooms are um, assembled with the people with a lot of power. Mm. And so that's interesting that there is um, there's sometimes this this need to be uh, tapped into power in a number of ways. Hmm. And then there's rooms that I'm in where um, I work with this wonderful group called Feathers of Hope. Um, It's an indigenous youth advocacy organization. And the people in the room are all, you know, they're all indigenous youth. They're the ones who, and there's other people in the room, but the ones who are speaking and being listened to primarily are those young people. Mm. Um, and so that to me is, is design justice in action, um, because of the people around the table are the people that are directly experiencing the issues that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones 
who hold the most power in that room. So um, one of the ways I, I think about your work or um, is through one of the ways that, well, how we met, long story short, is through AMC, mm-hmm. uh, through the Allied Media Conference. Um, and, you know, they're taking their their uh, uh, chrysalis here right now. So I'm missing all my folks. I'm glad I get to spend some time with you. <laughs> um, how did you get connected to Allied Media Conference? And um, why? What, what made that space like the right cauldron for this to... to come out of? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got connected in a very random way. I haven't heard of anyone else being connected in this way. Oh, good. This is going to be a great story. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's a very short story. I clicked on a banner ad, <laughs> this really colorful banner ad. Um, so I, I was in Toronto at the time. I was based in Toronto. I was organizing uh, with the G7, G20, um, uh, Toronto mobilization. um, And that was in 2010, I believe. Um, And I learned that the US Social Forum was going to be happening in Detroit. Um, I really wanted to attend that, but it was going to be the same weekend of the mobilization. Um, so I was on the U.S. Social Forum website, and I saw this like really cool banner ad. It's <laughs> uh, like, what's this? And it was the first and last banner ad I've ever clicked on. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> nearly ten years ago, um, and it took me to the website for the Allied Media Conference, and I couldn't believe that I had never heard of it before. Um, that there were all kinds of creative weirdos like myself who were um, organizers, who were artists, designers, technologists, other kinds of media makers um, who were getting together uh, to share stories, to teach each other, share skills, and to celebrate what we were doing. Um, And it was, I, I arrived and just felt like I was finally home. Um, and that I had finally like, tapped into this network of people who uh, were working in ways that were very different, like on issues that were very different than the ones I was working on um, and whose media and whose disciplines were very different. But, um, but it, felt, uh, it felt like we understood each other and we were um, kind of all moving uh, or flocking together <laughs> nice. in the words i think probably adrian ray brown <laughs> flocking i think folks would definitely uh, <laughs> connect with that yeah i'm curious so you got to amc and was that where because i i think about you in this work also in collaboration with with west taylor and some other <laughs> folks um is that where you all met and started talking about like this design as graphic designers and as people who build processes to build things because you're not you're also not designers that just go off and sit in an office and make things like you're in collaboration with communities you're talking to people um is that where this design justice like first started coalescing in in relationship with other people and other designers who are doing similar work for sure um I think that the 
the idea of working according to principles um, was something that was quite new to me and that was introduced to me at the Allied Media Conference. So uh, when I showed up that first year in 2010, I received a copy of the program guide um, <clears throat> or the program book. And I think on the inside front cover, very close to the front, there was this beautiful set of AMP network principles yes. uh, that just blew my mind and really set the tone for the whole experience. Um, and then I found out that other, uh, you know, interconnected bodies were also organizing according to principles and uh, very notable amongst those was the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. Um, and uh, so being exposed to those ways of working was, was really, it, things kind of started to gel for me. Um, and at the same time, I was meeting uh, all of these artists and designers. Uh, Wes Taylor is, uh, is a funny name to mention because I, I recently told him that I had been stalking his work for quite a while before I actually met him and was like just so excited to be meeting him um, because there, uh, it was hard to find designers to look up to and um, who I really felt I could learn from in more ways than just formal uh, aesthetic or design um, uh, design principles, but actual like uh, how do we marry what we do as a craft with um, with what we do as people who are parts of communities that are uh, you know going through what we're going through. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that together uh, was was really bubbling up, um, and I think that. Uh, it, it took a few years until we had amassed kind of enough people with enough ideas and enough energy to, to start um, the future design lab. Um, and then, and then to, for this light bulb moment to come on where it was like, okay, we need, we need a design justice movement and we need to be uh, working according to principles. And we're going to turn to, our gigantic family at the Allied Media Conference to help us formulate that first draft of the principles. Um, and then we kept coming back to the AMC for, with, uh, you know, with versions of the principles and asking for input and doing collaborative editing. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you all for uh, turning that into uh, a zine. I bought uh, a bunch of copies. Yeah. I don't know. Um, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because of the project um, that I, I work with on at the National Performance Network called Lane Leveraging a Network for Equity. And um, so we have four core principles um, that we say um, is how we know equity is being practiced. That, and so um, one of those, you mentioned Adrian Marie Brown, one of those is emergence, mm -hmm. um, uh, racial justice and cultural equity, mm -hmm. popular education, mm -hmm. and design justice are the four things we landed. So one of the first things when we were um, kind of uh, in it, kind of thinking about not just the, and I appreciate what you were saying, not just like the form, not just what are the pieces that are going to um, be involved in the the initiative, like how many meetings, blah, 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 but what undergirds how we do all of that. Um, I was like, ooh, design justice, design justice. I need the zine. 
And so I bought it for, for like our whole team. And we all were like kind of going through it. And it is one of the principles that the folks in our network, we work with 12 arts organizations across the country, that folks have been most excited about, quite honestly. They really um, are like, okay, wait, there's something about design justice that um, makes folks lean in. And they're like, I want to understand this better. There's something about this I want to be doing. And, and I think that um, one of the, what you said about um, like the process of bringing people together and how it was like what people are trying to figure out for themselves. And you're giving folks a really amazing um, framework right, on, on how to do that. So thank you all for, for the work you all have done and for the zine. I love it. That's amazing to hear. Um, because as you know uh, maybe close to half of us are design practitioners and i think that the assumption from the beginning was that uh, design justice would apply mainly to design uh, practices and so to hear that in organizing this national network of arts organizations and like i definitely see how it is a design question, um, how to organize this network. Um, but it's, it, it's kind of pushing design justice out to, to places that I didn't think, I didn't realize it would be going. And that's so exciting to me. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, uh, as someone who doesn't have a, a design practice, it's this idea of design, right? Like, I think that that is um, where we lean into uh, in how we think about all the things that we're designing and you all have created these right. principles and because we're not again even these arts organizations are community-based organizations they're not um you know museums that are are you know, disconnected from their mm -hmm. you know contemporary art center in york alabama their you know uh, um historic uh, latinx theater in denver that worked heavily in the Chicano movement there. You know, there are folks that have, that understand um, the the uh, role of culture in changing the world we live in, mm. you know, and circling back to uh, something you said about your work around making media for movements and that there were, you, you learned with your comrades at AMC how to talk about form and then, um, the community, what's going on with the communities we're a part of. And the other kind of layer that you didn't say, but I'll, I'm curious about is also like the world we want to live in, mm -hmm. right? Like how do we, how do we, um, so um, I guess there's a question there around like the role of design justice in building a just world, right? Like, and how you see those things connected. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's because um, one of the things that the Design Justice Network organizers like to say is that, you know, everything that we have built, constructed, organized, created has been designed. Like there have been design decisions made around them. Mm. So it's on the one hand... Ooh, say uh, that again, please. I just want to make sure folks heard that really clearly. Okay. Yeah. Um, everything that has been built created, organized, constructed, has been designed. And mm. so design decisions have been made. 
Um, they might have been made intentionally, they might have been made unintentionally, mm. um, but somewhere along the way there was there were a set of decisions made about about how it would look and how it would function um, and who it would serve mm. and implicitly then who it wouldn't serve or who it would harm. Wow. So I, I guess I should not be surprised at the reach of design justice. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and at the same time, it's, it's just, uh, it's exciting to see. Now I've lost track of your original question <laughs> <laughs> that was a great way to lose track because <laughs> i i'm, I'm going to put that on a t-shirt or something like i think that, that is that is brilliant and you all um really when folks are struggling to figure out like what how to build an analysis around the world in which they live and how it got to be the way it is and mm -hmm. how we um uh how we change it because we know it is fundamentally corrupt, inequitable, how we change it is through a different set of design questions and thoughts, right? And, and right. so um, what you're saying feels really um, grounding mm. to me. And I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that all week now. If, <laughs> if it's not just this week, I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. Yeah, look at anything in your life, any anything that's been constructed, um, mm -hmm. and then you can start to think about all of the design decisions as well as like the the power differentials that are represented mm -hmm. by that thing. Well, and I think that is that that's where this is leading me to. Like, I immediately start thinking about. Um, you know, a lot of racial justice trainers, particularly I'm thinking about the People's Institute for Survival and beyond, and they do a power analysis or where you, or they call it a foot analysis, where you look at what are the things that are in your community and how they got there, you mm -hmm. know, and then looking at what are the things that are in your community, how they got there, and then what does that tell you about the expectations for this community or how people expect to be treated. Like, mm -hmm. why are there so many, why is there a CVS across from a Walgreens, across from, you know, uh, uh, well, across from another CVS sometimes. <laughs> like, it's really, like, those things aren't accidents. And you're reminding us that these things are, um, on, a, on a good day, we could look at our own processes and say they were unintentional. Um, on, uh, but if we are looking at the world in which we live in, there are real clear intentions around how things have been designed. And underneath this, you can add things like redlining and um, the design of, of grant guidelines that like the design of all these things in, in the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, my question <laughs> was uh, about the relationship between uh, uh, design and transforming the world we live in into a place that is uh, more just and equitable, like and how um, how you see the principles of design justice combating systemic oppressions is how I'm going to land it. Yeah, I think that one thing that design justice puts forward is the need to recognize power and uh, the amount of power that designers hold, but not might not realize that they hold inside of a design process. Um, and in recognizing that power, being able to do something about it or with it, um, being able to 
uh, intervene or to move back uh, and center other people. Um, so there's there's that part of of building the world that we want to live in is how do we make design processes that are reflective of how we want power distributed. Um, and another thing is that comes to mind is um, another one of the design justice steering committee committee members, uh, Sasha Costanza Chalk, uh, talks about retooling, um, and this is. Uh, so exciting to me because it reflects things that are already happening. Um, so just, you know, doing that exercise of looking at who harms and who benefits and who owns, uh, who has ownership in a design process is, is a tool that, you know, we used in that um, design justice principles workshop in back in 2015, but it's not a tool that is like part of a conventional designer's toolkit, um, and and I think that when when we think about what design can contribute and what design justice can contribute to the world that we want to live in, um, we need to look at the tools that we're using and um, and how they're created, how they came about, um, and and I also think about um, the design brief. Uh, so the design brief is something that's, you know, very familiar to people who have been trained in design. Um, it outlines the parameters of a project, the budget, the objectives, um, the audiences slash users. Um, and it has, it, it creates these uh, parameters that a design needs to live inside of. And it's also this like evaluation tool that you can use to determine whether your design has been successful. But, um, but they don't include anything about power. They don't include anything about who might be harmed. Um, they don't include anything about, or conventionally they don't include these things. And they don't include um, what the values are or the principles are of a particular project. Um, and so my studio, we still use a design brief. We think it's a really useful tool, but we've added to it and expanded to uh, expanded upon it so that it reflects these things so that we can, um, you know, we reference the design brief at many points in the process, uh, including at the end of a project to evaluate how, you know, how we felt we did. Um, and, and having the values of the project on there um, is is grounding it keeps us it keeps us accountable i would say um to what we're doing and and the communities that we're working with wow that that's amazing an amazing add to i love the idea of the design brief i think that's really uh helpful but what what's got me spinning and a little bit tongue-tied now is, is um <laughs> the the layers that you're adding to that like I talk with people a lot about making sure you have your values clear, mm. but I, what you're adding in this conversation is also um, the power, harm, and benefit. Mm -hmm. And I think those four things um, feel like if if someone is is you know thinking about how to build a, a design process. Um, based upon design justice that 
these are some of the things that would be really important for them to to and to be a part to I don't say answer but to think through mm-hmm. although I now that I said that I'm like wait five things or six things because now I'm like there's collaboration that you talked about earlier definitely um there's uh, um uh so there are a couple of things coming out of this that I feel like uh, we call this, you know, a practical guide, right? So I'm like, folks can listen. And these are some of the things that um, I know I'll be thinking about um, as I design anything. <laughs> there's a, it seems like there's a lot of design that happens in life. There really yeah, is. There is, yeah. You know? Um, and so for folks who uh, uh, don't have a, a um, well, who both may have a, a physical design practice, like they design images or like media, um, and um, also folks who are designing processes or, or programs or all kinds of things that these, this as a, as a framework to think through feels really rich um, and, and valuable. That's wonderful. Yeah. And these are things that we have been trying to figure out ways to share. Um, so the Design Justice Network is definitely working on, you know, we have the zine, um, but we also want to be creating resources for folks. So just just something that we're working on, working okay. towards. Call me. I got a bunch <laughs> of folks who would love to like... <laughs> to collaborate uh, um, on something on something because um, like I said it has been instrumental and really exciting um, for many of the folks I'm working myself included in and also many of the folks that I was like oh who don't who've, who've never been to AMC and like you know ever since the workshop it's been in in my zeitgeist like in the air around me um and really like this was an opportunity to say okay this feels really important as part of a practice for Mm -hmm. equity and justice to really think about design justice and i'm so grateful that you took the time to talk uh with me about it Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. tell me about the design future lab oh the future design lab future design lab um, Future Design Lab, uh, like so much that's, you know, design justice related has this long lineage. Um, so prior to that, it was called, oh, I might get this wrong. <laughs> so I think it emerged at the AMC as the Media Lab, the AMC Media Lab. Mm-hmm. And um, the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition um, please forgive me if I get this history wrong because I'm not as intimately familiar with it. But um, they began organizing these discotheques, um, discovery, discovering technology festivals. And so um, then the Media Lab, which was always a place to like tinker and start applying some of the things that people were learning at the AMC, um, became this discotheque, which uh, was an AMC version of these events that had been happening in uh, different neighborhoods in Detroit that were just about um, neighbors getting together and teaching each other about different technologies, um, as well as um, the impacts that those technologies have on your day-to-day life. Um, And so it became the Disco Tech Lab. And then I think um, 
as design kind of kept coming up as as something that maybe there needed to be a larger presence for at the AMC, uh, the discotheque kind of shifted into the future design lab. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, I think that was partially a reflection of of this kind of desire for more design conversations, as well as just a shift in like who had the capacity to be organizing it. Um, mm-hmm. So the future design lab uh, retained some of some of what the discotheques were doing, the discotheque lab, um, but then also became like a a more um, design focused space as well. Um, And then I think that ran for a couple of years and then morphed into a design justice track. When people were saying that they, um, you know, just wanted more like concrete tools. Mm -hmm. I I love this idea of like future labs. Yeah. That, uh, uh, all, I think there's just that's feels really important for me like in terms of what we need right now or like future design design future labs like where we experimenting yeah. and and trying things and learning from them and um, mm-hmm. one of the things that was that really stands out to me about uh, I can't remember which year it was it might have been both years but we brought in a green screen and invited people to draw pictures of the the world that they want to live in, mm. um, and it was mostly uh, kids and youth that were were participating <laughs> in this exercise. But they would draw this amazing landscape of the future, and they would take photographs of themselves um, and learn to Photoshop themselves into these images. And they're gorgeous. Um, I should dig up these photos because they're just like they're just so exciting and and yeah, so cool what they were dreaming of. Oh, that's so amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I wanna do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that these kinds of like wildly imaginative uh, things that um people are invited to do or were invited to do in these labs, I think um the younger you are, the more open you are to mm-hmm. to just jumping in and um, without inhibition. Um, and and there's something that happens uh, as we get older, and um, <laughs> something that starts to uh, many things that start to like kind of oppress our imaginations. Um, that I really think, yeah, it needs to be undone. I my my fundamental. Um, argument around white supremacist culture is it does two things. It makes us ahistorical and truncates our imagination. Mm-hmm. And I think design justice is uh, such a through way, um, such a way to get through that. Mm-hmm. Like, and, back to, and what you're describing is how do we get back to our imagination and and back to possibility, which is what history tells us, because it hasn't always been this, doesn't always have to be this. When folks want to tell you what the real world is, mm-hmm. you know, I you know I quote Ursula Le Guin a lot, mm-hmm. you know, um, where there's a quote where she says, "Capitalism seems inevitable, and so did the divine right of kings." Right. Like there there was a time when no one imagined a world would look like this, and mm-hmm. so what you did with the green screen is like, oh. In, in in my imagination, I did it and then put it up on my wall and I get to walk by it every day and say, <laughs> you know, this is the future I'm going to live, you know, and and that guides my steps to, yeah. to making sure I'm focused on getting there. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think the role of the designer in that is just to, to uplift other people's imaginations as well as our own. And, and to, uh, is it Tony Kade Bambara who, was, who said to make the revolution irresistible? Yes, Tony yeah. Kade Bambara. Yeah. Um, and I, I really feel like that's, that's a huge part of design justice, the, that joyful, celebratory, visionary part that also needs to be uplifted, that we're, we are trying to make beautiful things um, and beautiful things that are in service of liberation. Thank you for listening. Funding support for Lane is provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. You can find more information about Lane and the amazing organizations involved on the NPN website, www.npnweb.org. This episode was co-edited by Amanda Bankston and Monica Tyran. Jazz Franklin is our podcast editor and sound design by Muti Reed.